This is the Concast, the podcast about the Indian Constitution, the Supreme Court, and beyond. Hello and welcome to this end of the year issue of the Concast. Back after a brief hiatus, and today we are delighted to welcome back an old friend, Surit Patsarthi, to the Concast. Uh, Surit, thanks so much for joining us once more. My pleasure to be back, Gautam. Thanks for having me. Have you been engaged in that uh, thing that really gets people angry with lawyers and judges uh, taking vacations? Yeah, the much maligned uh, vacations. Uh, I mean, sadly, coming to an end uh, very quickly. Courts reopen here on the second. Uh, but of course, I, I, you know, it's like like a topic of discussion today. One uh, sometimes doesn't understand uh, entirely the reason for this uh, sort of criticism. But uh, yeah, here we are. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's so sad the vacations are ending on Monday because you think that we are always on vacation. Uh, and as you said, uh, you don't quite get the, the reasons behind some of the, um, the the anger, which also applies to our topic of discussion, the the Collegium. And you know, it's, it's funny because um, we were going to record this podcast last week and we had begun recording it until Airtel decided that uh, the internet is an optional luxury and just went for a walk. Uh, and I remember telling you at the time that, well, it's the holidays, you know, what will change in one week? So we'll do this this time next week, except that in that one week, the law minister has made yet another statement uh, against the judiciary, which seems to be a, a weekly thing. And I, I want to ask you, I want to begin by asking you about that, because, you know, the collegium is now 30 years old, right? 1992 was when it came into existence. And uh, the political class has never liked it. They've always, you know, so we've always had sniping from the political class, regardless of which government has been in power. But I don't think we have seen the kind of sustained, almost weekly attacks by the executive on the court that are focused on the collegium. And it's almost like a tag team thing. So it'll be the law minister one week, the vice president the next week, someone else the week after. And every problem with the judiciary, whether it's pendency of cases, uh, lack of diversity and so on, is linked back to the appointments process in the collegium. Is that something new and different? Yeah, I think it's unprecedented, really, I mean, in many ways, you know, the way I see it. I, I, I don't even think we had this kind of criticism in the lead up to the uh, enactment of the NJAC and the amendments that were brought into the constitution at that time. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't even think the collegium was uh, criticized uh, to this extent, uh, even back then. And uh, even when it was called into question, look, I think there are legitimate questions, right, to be asked about the collegium's functioning, its transparency, its uh, the way it goes about choosing judges to both the high courts and the Supreme Court. And I, and I think these are important questions that uh, one needs to deal with and, and, and that need to be uh, debated in public. But uh, for the government and for the executive through the law minister and uh, you know through offices such as the vice president to uh, really make sort of ad hominem attacks on the collegium, I think is deeply regrettable. And uh, it doesn't bode well at all for the, uh, for, the for, for the general sort of functioning of our uh, democracy. And uh, I do think it's unprecedented in that sense. And the unfortunate thing about it also is that this is that this criticism isn't uh, constructive in any way. Uh, it's just sort of a broad attacks saying that the collegium is somehow uh, against the uh, 
constitution's intention against the uh, text of the constitution or against the uh, objectives that the constituent assembly had it's just sort of uh, you know broad attacks at that level as opposed to how it's in fact functioning and uh, the role that the executive itself has played in the functioning of the collegium and i'm sure we'll uh, come into some of you know we'll, we'll discuss some of these decisions over the course of our uh, uh, chat today but uh, yeah but it's unprecedented i i i we've not seen anything like this even over the course of the last 10 years even if we just take the last 10 years yeah and i, th- I think one thing that we'll come back to maybe at the end of this podcast is whether the nature of these attacks effectively makes uh you know a, a solution impossible and if you know if the, because when you cre- when you create what is essentially an our zero sum game uh, ultimately the two options then you seem to have are either the collegium or something like executive control uh, you know which forces people into this false binary uh, but but we'll come to that at, at the end i think if you if you look at what but, uh, sorry no but really although i i also don't understand the objective of these uh, you know attacks because look the the collegium is the system that we have today and one can question it no doubt and sort of uh, say that these are the things that need to be improved within the system but if you are not in fact proposing an alternative then i don't understand where this uh, criticism really comes from i mean it's not like another constitution amendment has been introduced and that's the only real option right if they want to bring about change that's the only thing that can be done yeah i think i think we we'll look at what the options that are there now after the njsc judgment you know and what what you know options exist in light of that but but that yeah that will will come to that i think if you look at the, um, the 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 criticism that has come over the last you know few weeks i see it broadly as falling into three categories and the first is that uh, that the collegium is something unrecognized by the constitution the constitution does not envisage this method of selection which is effectively the the top uh, 5 judges of the supreme court decide elevations to the supreme court and the top 3 for the high courts and the high courts of their own collegiums and so on so basically judges appointing judges uh, is something unknown to the constitution uh, secondly that the collegium system does not adequately uh, yield appointments that reflect the diversity of the nation in terms of, of gender caste and so on uh, and the third is that it is effectively nepotism so it's it's you know people promoting their own family favoritism and so on and uh, let, let let's begin with the first objection right which is that that this um, is a form of appointment that is effectively a usurpation by the court of appointment powers um, and i think that's something important because that really is where we have to contextualize uh, where this collegium came from and why it exists because it, it didn't come out of the blue right so article 124 of of the constitution 124 says that every judge of the supreme court shall be appointed by the president by warrant under his hand and seal after consultation with such of the judges of the supreme court and of the high courts you know as the president made necessary um, and provided yeah. that in the case of appointment of a judge other than the chief justice uh, the cji will be consulted right so if you look at the literal wording of this provision the idea is that um, the the president which effectively in our system is the executive uh, consults the chief justice and then formally makes an appointment that is what the literal wording of of this uh, provision is, appears to imply and now if you look at the constitutional assembly debates there was a fair bit of debate around the model of of judicial appointment and uh, so this this language 
did come after some thought, right? So there was something the framers were thinking of when they chose this wording. What do you think that was? Like, what was the idea underlying this uh, appointment process? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, these sort of concerns about how India's judges need to be appointed and the role and the larger role that the judiciary played in, you know, what was really meant to be a social revolution, I think it troubled the Constituent Assembly quite a bit. And uh, we know there were, you know, very many different kinds of suggestions that were made. Uh, there were suggestions that came from some quarters that said that judicial appointments should be made by the president, but after confirmation by a two-thirds majority of a you know joint sitting of parliament. And uh, one of the members, uh, B. Poker Sahib, in fact suggested that a judge of the Supreme Court should be appointed only after seeking the express concurrence of the Chief Justice of India. Uh, now, neither of these suggestions was ultimately accepted. And uh, in Dr. Ambedkar's words, the Constitution ultimately, uh, you know, was designed to tread a middle course. And, and, and that's the sort of language that he used. And he said that that middle course is reflected today in Articles 124, which you, uh, you know, mentioned, and also Article 217, which deals with uh, appointments of judges to the high courts. And uh, the words here, as we as we saw, are, uh, you know, the president shall appoint judges in consultation with the Chief Justice of India and such other judges that he deems necessary. Now, I think at, on a first reading, on a literal reading, the provision looks unambiguous. It looks very clear. Uh, but we've had, you know, right from the outset, uh, a lack of clarity on what exactly this uh, process entails. Because what does one mean by consultation? You know, what is the precise nature of this consultation that, in fact, needs to be, uh, you know, conducted? And what can I just stop you there for a moment? So, I mean, is is the thinking, or was the thinking in your reading, that you you look at both the president and the uh, chief justice, basically as constitutional like statesmen, or, you know, constitutional functionaries? who will be acting in good faith. Um, and of course, at that time, and I think this is important to remember, the president, there was still not complete clarity about the president's discretion in various spheres. You know, so it it became established over time, but it's not necessary that the framers saw the president as an extension of the executive in this question, right? That That's one possibility. And that what they basically believed was that this process would be something that's governed by what we call constitutional conventions, you know, uh, so not literal constitutional law, but there would be a constitutional convention that ordinarily the president would, you know, act on the recommendation of the chief justice unless there was something, you know, seriously wrong and it would be sort of a consensual process. I think so. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think that that's what they envisage and really the first sort of 20 years of our uh, you know, functioning of our democracy, that's what we saw. Uh, and, uh, you know, in the sense that uh, even though Nehru, for example, had uh, and, and his government had large numbers of issues with the kinds of judgments that were being handed out by the Supreme Court, and uh, they weren't especially happy with some of the general uh, constitutional philosophy of uh, many of the judges on the Supreme Court, uh, that the government at the time nonetheless 
accepted the Chief Justice's recommendation on virtually every appointment. I, I, I don't think there was a single appointment uh, where there was a difference where the executive sort of overrode the Chief Justice's uh, recommendation. But of and course, was an incident in the 50s when Nehru actually did try and supersede a, a judge once and there were such strong protests from both the the bench and the bar that he had to abandon the, the plan yeah. altogether. That's right. I, I, I think it was generally taken, as you say, that as it being a matter of constitutional convention that the Chief Justice of India, you know, when when uh, he, he recommended a person for elevation either to the high courts or to the Supreme Court, that such a recommendation would be coming from a position of, uh, you know, particular authority, which uh, the government would, uh, would almost never uh, object to. And uh, unless there were possibly very serious objections that, uh, you know, which which had to be taken into account, but it, it never really came to that. And, uh, and I think, uh, you know, r- right up to uh, 1971, and, uh, you know, the, uh, when, when following the split in the Congress, and uh, following the uh, coming into power of uh, Indira Gandhi's fact- faction, Right up to that point, I think appointments, uh, by and large, not not by and large, uh, almost enti- entirely went on the basis of the uh, Chief Justice's recommendation. But but look at that time, there was also no collegium, right? It wasn't that the Chief Justice was acting in consultation with other judges. We don't know how this process was actually working. There've been there's been some literature on it, but none of it has been really clear on how exactly the process worked. It, uh, it really seems to have been quite an ad hoc process, where I think the Chief Justice possibly in appointing judges to the high courts, uh, he was obviously speaking to the chief justices of the high courts, getting names from there, speaking to others that he possibly trusted at the time and recommending them to the president. There was no transparent criteria, really, that was uh, being applied in appointing these judges. And I mean, Rabinav Chandrachud book, right? Supreme Whispers, that yeah. some of those uh, judges and so on. Uh, the, the other point I want to flag is that at the time of the framing, uh, I think the framers definitely did not envisage the expanded role of the Supreme Court in public life that it plays today, right? So they looked at the Supreme Court as a court of law, which would, you know, yes, be the final the apex court, the court of last resort, but effectively be resolving legal disputes, sometimes interstate disputes, uh, you know, uh, constitutional cases, of course. They did not see a Supreme Court that... Um, would be engaging uh, in policy, administration, and in fact, off late in political disputes, you know, all these government-forming disputes, to the extent that our Supreme Court is and has been for a while. So what I want to suggest is that in that sense, uh, the stakes were lower, right? Because the reason why I think that this has become so fraught now is because of this expanded role the Supreme Court has taken for itself, uh, it, the significance of an appointment then is that much that much more. And when you even have cases like you have of late, where, you know, I'm thinking of the Tista Settlewood case, where the Supreme Court actually then passes an order that encourages the government to, in a certain sense, uh, go after the petitioners, right? You have a court that's really gone far beyond that narrow legalistic role which makes the stakes that much higher. Um, and I think that it that one, again, one reason why the framers might have been content 
to leave the question of appointments you know open to these constitutional conventions sort of collegial forgive the pun collegial role between the executive and the um, uh, and the court was that because the stakes were lower yeah i mean i i, I sort of partly agree uh, but uh, in the sense that the role of the court is obviously expanded over a period of time and uh, perhaps the framers didn't quite uh, think you know didn't quite envisage the court playing the kind of role that it is today but really i mean we have seen the court engage with serious issues of constitutional importance right from you know right from the off court right i mean right from champakam durai rajan's judgment onwards which prompted the first amendment and you know uh, and other cases like bridge bhushan ramesh thapa then uh, you know ak gopalan's case so there were serious questions where and and all the land reform cases really and i think that's where the serious sort of uh, discord between the judiciary and the executive really started and mm. uh, if 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 we look at the court's role in these land reform disputes and and you know uh, in 1967 i think by the time uh, you know a few years after nehru's death and uh, you had the judgment in kolaknath mm. where uh, <clears throat> the court essentially held that uh, you know parliament could not amend the constitution uh, in a manner that uh, infringed the fundamental rights or that removed a fundamental right and uh, you know th- this was something that uh, perhaps i i would think the framers didn't really think it would come to this uh, you know with the judiciary sitting on judgment over constitutional amendments so uh, once the court started to kind of deal these uh, kinds of blows then i think it became a matter of serious contest and which is why when indira gandhi came to power in 71 uh, she effectively said that she would remove these uh, barriers that were placed by the judiciary in bringing about social change and yeah, let's actually let's actually come to that now i think i think this is a good segue into that right so so you have these the first say the first um, 20 25 years where like nehru and then shastri and barring a couple of hiccups you know there is no serious clash between the court and the executive on the question of appointments at least right there are other clashes but not on this um but then you have indira gandhi uh, and then you have for example well first of all as you said this open uh, laying down of the gauntlet specifically one of our ministers says that we want a committed judiciary committed to a specific ideology and so you know openly sort of says that you want a court that is in lockstep with the ideology espoused by the then government uh, so you have all these statements coming out and then of course you have you know very concrete punitive action so you have action in the sense that keshavananda bharti you know our legendary case uh, the the day after it's decided the chief justice is due to retire secretly and uh, the next three senior judges after him who you know by seniority conventions were meant to be chief justice you know you know in that in that order are all superseded because they were in the majority in kishanandha bharti and you know a n ray who was in the dissent is uh, basically vaults over them and becomes chief justice then you have all of these transfers happening you know various high courts where judges are transferred if they are perceived to be ruling against the executive this becomes particularly serious during the emergency where a lot of judges actually stand up at, at the high court level uh, you know and uh, and uh, are giving judgments 
pro liberty judgments against the government getting transferred uh, and then of course you have the notorious habeas corpus case where um, you know you have again the four judges in the majority who uphold effectively complete government impunity during the emergency and you have justice khanna who dissents who comes home uh, tells his wife i have given up the chief justiceship because he is next in line and true to form he is superseded he resigns right so throughout the 70s you basically have the situation where judges who go against the government are effectively treated to punitive action right? that is the context under which the 70s sort of proceed yeah yeah and really i think and uh, that's where the first judgment uh, comes out you know in terms of uh, this entire process of appointments and transfers because uh, there was one judge uh, from the gujarat high court justice sankal chand sheth uh, who was transferred out of the gujarat high court during the emergency and uh, he challenges this order of transfer and uh, again the uh, provision for transfer which is 222 also reads similarly similar to 217 and 124 in that it says that the uh, uh, transfer shall be made by the president in consultation with the uh, chief justice of india uh, and he challenges this order of transfer and uh, the supreme court in that case uh, in sankalchan shet's case rules that the executive was not bound by the chief justice's opinion in making an order of transfer uh, because the provision only uses the word consult and uh, you know not concur and uh, but it's in justice vr krishnan's judgment is interesting because he kind of goes into what this consultation process should in fact entail and he says that this process of consultation should be real substantial and effective and based on full and proper materials placed before the chief justice by the government and he also adds and says that if the government chooses to ignore the opinion of the chief justice then there's every chance the court itself might step in and you know invalidate this uh, uh, you know the the, uh, the order of transfer because the government's order would have uh, Uh, you know not been in good faith and would have uh, would be amenable to uh, general principles of public law law really and uh, therefore his the idea was that a order of transfer that's being made by the executive should be based not on any extraneous consideration but should be based on cogent and you know uh, 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 you know all your general principles of administrative law would come into it Uh, which i think is an interesting judgment and really for for whatever reason this is not called as the first judges case although i yeah, think yeah yeah <laughs> it, it perhaps should be the first judges case yeah. it's, it's and it's interesting that this judgment was 1977 so when the memory of these punitive transfers was still very fresh um, but they were still cautious so you know they would go the whole hog and say that consultation means concurrence a decade and a half later but right now they were still treading very cautiously was it a bit testing the waters seeing the reaction um i don't know i mean it's hard to really tell right in the sense of uh, you know what they were thinking in terms of uh, this larger battle between the executive and the judiciary and uh, again uh, you know i've i've, I've seen abinav's abinav chandrachur's book on uh, on you know on 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 all of these battles being played out and some of the some of the other literature on it as well and there's no real uh, rationale for or there's no real discussion on why the court 
you know rule the way it did because even if we look at the first judges case which came later yeah so maybe we should, we should come to that right so after this now in you have sp gupta commonly known as the first judges case where yeah. this question for the first time on appointments is squarely before the court right and and so what does the court say over there like they, they still maintain you know that it it is only consultation right no yeah i i actually think that they dialed back quite a bit from uh, sankal chanshet and yeah. uh, it, what they did was on the one hand they said that look consultation can only mean consultation it can never mean concurrence but uh, they overlooked the judgment in sankal chanshet altogether and they effectively gave like a carte blanche to the executive and said that look the chief justice can say whatever he wants but you're free to appoint whoever you wish to Uh, as a judge of the supreme court or as a judge of any of the high courts and uh, in fact uh, silvai said that the judiciary was now effectively placed at the mercy of the government of india uh, following the in, you know in his critique of the judgment in sp gupta sp gupta's case which is the first judge's case and we saw the after the sp gupta case over the course of the next 10 years or so and uh, particularly during rajiv gandhi's time as prime minister that uh, there were a number of appointments that were made without the concurrence of the chief justice of india and this is a serious departure from what had been a norm for many years and of course you know we discussed what happened during the emergency the super session and all of that but i think for the first time you had a raft of appointments that were being made without the concurrence of the chief justice effectively uh, the the executive for the first time in possibly the history of india acting as the sort of final arbiter and sole decision maker in terms of uh, making appointments to the judiciary and uh, which again i think from there we come to the we'll have to go over to the second judge's case but yeah, i think i think i think it's again it's interesting to point out that uh, sp gupta is you know handed down in 1982 when indira gandhi had come back to power right so again like you have a, and and it's and it's in sp gupta the the person heading the bench you know is at uh, the person who writes the judgment is justice bhagwati um, you know and you know again he's famously wrote that letter to indira gandhi saying something like what the sun has come back so you know some some very cringe sort of you know uh, letter to indira gandhi when she came back to power and so again it just seems that that um, when you have this sort of powerful dominating executive you know in place the court you know it seems either incapable or unwilling to really assert itself whether it is you know the supersession controversies of the 70s or you know like in this case the sp gupta case it actually dials back on the effective consultation standard laid down in um, in the, in himatal shakal said himatal it just seems to be a lot to do with how powerful the executive is which i think again plays into a lot of what we are seeing right now today yeah i mean it certainly does and I, and, and you know i just wanted to add a, another word or two on sankal chanshet i think there was much to be built on from sankal chanshet and i think the court effectively sort of gave up on that opportunity because it could really have fleshed out in far more detail what this consultation process should have in fact entailed because you know you know i mean i i think we have slightly differing views on this in terms of uh, whether judicial primacy is in fact necessary or not in terms to ensure uh, to, you know to ensure the independence of the judiciary and whether it's part of the basic structure or not and we'll come to all of that uh, shortly but i do think that uh, 
this the solution in sankalchan shet was potentially a workable one in the sense of saying that look the opinion of the chief justice of india has to be given the highest regard and you can only depart from it if you have really genuine reasons for doing so it can't be something to be effect of saying that i don't agree with this judge's general judicial philosophy it has to be something to do with say it could mean you know if the executive had some serious information which suggested that a person was corrupt or uh, you know that uh, there was some other sort of deficiency or you know of some kind which uh, really went to the root of their ability to function as a judge then perhaps the opinion of the chief justice of india would not be binding and and, and that's the kind of process that i think justice krishnayer was suggesting uh, when in his judgment in sankalchan shet's case and it's uh, unfortunate that that uh, balance was lost but yeah i mean you're right i mean it's uh, it, it does come in large you know to a large extent to the question of power and and how it's balanced at the time between the different wings of government and uh, we saw you know even when the second judge's case was uh, came about it was really in the backdrop of a uh, you know proposal to have a, another national judicial commission right which would have i think potentially removed the uh, uh, or reduced the role of the chief justice of india even further and that's yeah. what uh, led to the second judge's case yeah so let's come to that right so in the second judge's case now uh, they basically the pendulum swings to the other extreme uh, you know in the second judge's case uh, 1993 sorry not 1992 so 1993 and in this case now for the first time they say that actually when article 124 uses the word uh, consultation what it means is concurrence so the chief justice of india has primacy in appointments it's his well and of course through him the collegium because that's introduced as well um the chief justice it it's his call and from the executive having the effective final call which was the result of the judgment in sp gupta uh, now the executive's role is purely formal so the chief justice will provide his nominee his or her nominee and and then effectively the executive has only the formal role of of issuing the warrant of appointment right so what reasons did they give to justify well a you know this reading of the constitution that on first blush seems quite contrary to the text and secondly departing from what had become precedent in in this matter yeah i mean i actually haven't seen any real reasoning in the judgment i uh, i mean i'm happy to hear you know, your views to the contrary in terms of what that reasoning is i mean apart from the court saying that uh, the chief justice is best equipped to you know to know and assess the worth of candidates apart from that on a broad either textual reading of the provisions in 124 and 217 or in terms of looking at the uh, objectives of the constituent assembly and the intentions of the framers i i, I don't think the second judge's case uh, is especially clear on why at all there should be this collegium hmm. and uh, and 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 why the chief justice of india's uh, opinion should be binding on the executive and you know it also comes up with all kinds of other uh, processes right in in the sense this in the first place this establishment of the collegium the constitution itself doesn't speak about a collegium neither 124 nor 217 speaks about a panel of consultees it says 
the Chief Justice and such of other his colleagues that the President thinks necessary. And uh, as to why this should be restricted to the top three judges when it comes to appointing judges to the high courts or the top five judges when it comes to appointing judges to the Supreme Court, all of this is the court effectively, uh, you know, filling up, not, not even so much, as much filling up holes as much as I think in some ways rewriting the text of the Constitution. And I think uh, the other requirement that when it's a judge of a particular high court that is being proposed for elevation to the Supreme Court, then the collegium will also comprise a member from that high court who's already on the Supreme Court. And things like this, it's, 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 it's not there in the text of the Constitution. It's not there uh, from a reading of the Constituent Assembly's discussions. It's, it, these are really things that the Supreme Court has come up with on its own. Well, I think, and I think that like this is, I think again, I think this is the only example I think in the world where the appointments process and the modalities have come out of a judgment, right? So in other countries, it'll either be in the constitution and then enacted through legislation. Whereas I think we are the only ones where it's literally appointments have, you know, you if you trace the source of the appointments process, it's a court judgment and not, you know the constitutional text and uh, a law. That's right. Yeah, I in the sense that I, uh, it, it is in many ways. It, it, see, I can understand, I think, if that there were what you've you know, described as constitutional silences in terms of the court trying to fill in holes which are absent in the constitution's text. But, but I think sort of setting up a committee altogether for what is really a constitutional process, uh, to me, it strikes me as something that is entirely extra constitutional in many ways. But I, you know, I, we'll, again, we'll come to this later uh, in the sense that there are two aspects to this. One is a critique of the collegium system and a critique of the second judge's case and the third judge's case and the judgment in the uh, NJAC case. And the other is in terms of what the process is today and how we can improve it. I think there are two aspects to it. And I, and I think sometimes, uh, uh, and, and especially as we've seen from the criticism from the law ministry in particular over the course of the last few weeks, I, I think some of the, you know, the, the, the government especially has kind of uh, gotten itself into a bit of a knot in terms of uh, equating these two and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and therefore kind of uh, making it seem that it's all the collegium's fault that judges are not being appointed to the courts and that, uh, you know, the delays in the judicial process are therefore faults of the collegium. I, I think too much blame is being placed on this system. But at the same time, there are, you know, valid criticisms to be made of the functioning of the collegium in terms of uh, uh, its transparency, its accountability, its, uh, you know, lack of public consultation, things which in a democracy one would think are inherent or ought to be inherent to a process of appointments. And we can no, really... I think and that's, that's something I think we'll, we'll come to. Again, I don't know if that needs discussion because I think that what the flaws with the collegium are very clear, right? I mean, you don't need to be a, a you know, acute legal analyst to, to, to see that, yes, there are many issues with, with right. collegium. It's opaque, non-representative, non-diverse, all of that. So, I mean, th there is a grain of truth in what the law minister is saying. You know, and, and there's no doubt about that. And I think part of what makes uh, the present situation so difficult uh, is that while on the one hand, the critique has merit, 
uh, on the other hand, the alternative is one that there just seems to be no way to get to a point where the alternative isn't executive control. But but just just to to bracket that for the moment, so I think just to end on the second judge's case, I think you're right in that the uh, the Supreme Court completely failed to really give any any valid legal reason for what it was doing. And just to quote from the judgment in in para 447, what they say, majority, what the majority says, is that that the appointment of judges should not be left to the absolute discretion of the executive, right? So that's proposition one, which fair enough, right? So, you know, we have discussed that. If you look at the debates, uh, you see that concern and definitely lessons of history uh, are there with respect to not making the executive supreme in the question of appointment. So no, no, no real dispute with that. But from there, uh, they go to primacy of the judiciary in appointments on the basis, and this is a few paras down, where they basically say that um, the, uh, again, quoting, the arena of performance of those men, which is the candidates for appointment, are the courts. It is therefore obvious that the maximum opportunity for judging their ability and traits is in the courts, and therefore the judges are best suited to assess their true worth and fitness for appointments as judges. Now, this is really weak reasoning, right? I mean, this this is not reasoning at all. Um, and so I think that there is this gap that exists between the valid concern that you should not read con- consultation in Article 124 in a way that would give the executive supremacy over appointments, because we have seen where that leads, between that proposition and what they come to in the second judge's case, which is that it therefore follows that uh, the right answer is not executive supremacy, but judicial supremacy. And in that, they missed that middle path you mentioned in uh, Sankarachan State's case, where you could actually try and give the word consultation more teeth, more bite. Right. You know, yeah. um, they, they missed that, that, that fork in history, and, and we'll never know. Uh, what would have happened had they taken that uh, option up, you know, and now it's, I think, it's clearly too late for that at the moment, given the standoff. Um, but I, I think the the important bit is, and we, we'll jump forward uh, a couple of decades again, and I think we'll skip the third judge's case because, you know, in, in our discussion that effectively reiterates, uh, you know, this uh, the collegium system, this gap between uh, the, um, the, the desire not to yield uh, appointments to the to executive discretion and judicial primacy is ultimately what really comes to the fore in the NJAC case in 2015, right? So perhaps if you could briefly tell us about like the NJAC, the act, and you know then what happened to it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, can I just before we get to the NJAC act and 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 to the constitutional amendment, I think it's also kind of sort of important to just say that. Uh, and, and this is something that's that comes out in Abhinav Chandrachud's book, which is to say that the way in which the collegium function, and I'm not here, and, I, and I'm not just on the transparency uh, part of it, uh, but also the kind of criteria that it began to introduce, right? In the sense, for example, uh, there were a number of what he describes as informal criteria, mm. which is that, uh, you know, a person would have to be at least 55 years old before they considered for appointment uh, to the Supreme Court and, uh, you know, which then means that a person in the Supreme Court would not get more than 10 years as a judge. And this is not something that flows from the 
constitution's text, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and and there are a number of other such uh, informal criteria that are uh, put in place. Uh, of course, some of it is aimed at bringing about perhaps a certain kind of uh, diversity in terms of ensuring that where almost all high courts across the country are represented mm. in the Supreme Court and, uh, and and things of that sort, uh, really. But uh, <clears throat> I, the reason why I think that's important is that uh, there's this memorandum of procedure, the, you know, which was formulated by the Collegium and, and which, uh, which, which speaks about a number of these informal criteria, which are simply absent in the Constitution's text. The Constitution simply says that if you're an advocate who's had 10 years at the bar or if you're a jurist, then you can be considered for appointment, right? Yeah. Uh, so all of these are, I, I, we, we don't know where these criteria really flow from, but it's of yeah. the collegium's yeah. making and it's a, uh, it, it, it flowed from a matter of convenience. And of course, coming to the NJAC, the NJAC was, it, it, it seemed like one of the you know, first things that the NDA, new NDA government in 2014 really wanted to do, right? It wanted to impose its stamp on the judiciary. It, uh, there was it, there was a government with a majority in parliament after a really long time, in the sense that one party enjoyed wielding a substantial majority in parliament. Uh, this was not a coalition government. This was a government that could make substantial changes to the constitutional realm. And yeah, but was, just to just to stop you on that, they didn't have two thirds majority. In fact, I mean, as they never stop reminding us, yeah. the NJAC amendment was apart from Jaitmalani was unanimous. So yeah. they couldn't have done it without the enthusiastic support of the then opposition. True. Yeah, and 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 they did seem to have like there, there seemed to be large political consensus that the collegium was needed to go and that uh, there needed to be a you know a different way to appoint. India judges and uh, to sort of wrest some of the executive control back. And, uh, you know, in principle, the idea of having a judicial appointments commission is something that is something that appeals to me. And I, and I do think that uh, one needs to at some point move away from the uh, collegium system simply because the collegium system has no place as, as I see it in the constitution. But uh, the NJAC, I mean, look, uh, I, th I think we can have debates on whether it violated the basic structure or not and, and what the judgment ultimately held, but we come to that later. What the NJAC did was, and what I mean, the uh, government introduced the 99th, what, what was ultimately enacted as the 99th constitutional amendment. And in that, it said uh, through Article 124A, that there would be a national judicial appointments commission and that this commission would comprise the CJI, his two senior most colleagues, the law minister and two eminent persons. Uh, and these eminent persons would be jointly appointed by the prime minister, the leader of the opposition and the CJI together. And Article 124B then said that the NJAC would have the power to make appointments to both the Supreme Court and the various high courts. And 124C gave Parliament the power to make laws to regulate the NJAC's functioning. Right. Yeah. Now, I think one of the things that uh, 
and a lot of it in terms of how the NJAC would function flowed from the NJAC Act, which was also enacted concomitantly along with the amendment. And uh, for example, uh, you know, I, th- I, I think uh, it, it said that, you know, that it was sufficient if you had two votes effectively to veto an appointment, right? I mean, two votes on the six member yeah. commission could veto an appointment and which then meant that uh, you could have the law minister along with one of the eminent persons that was appointed effectively, uh, you know, that was sitting on the commission uh, vetoing a suggestion made by, let's say, the judges. And therefore, this idea of judicial primacy was lost with the introduction of the NGOs. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the important thing to remember as well is that um, the uh, 124C effectively made that possible through ordinary law. Uh, you know, so you did not have things like what the quorum would be and stuff like that uh, in the constitution. Uh, so those things became subjected to ordinary law. So it is, for example, hypothetically possible that you could amend, Parliament could later amend the NJC Act. And for example, just hypothetically, give a veto to the law minister. You know, and I think that's something that definitely spooked uh, the, the bench and the NJAC that, that well, you know, what sounds a little reasonable today could very easily shift into unreasonableness tomorrow, depending on the political situation of the time. And so I, I do feel that that played a role in, um, in what they did. But of course, ultimately, the judgment had to be rested on on constitutional grounds. And I think this is where you have a real problem because, you know, I think until now, there was a little bit of ambiguity and and slippage, you know, in what the precise um, foundations of the collegium were and what was part of the basic structure and what wasn't. So the Supreme Court could say in sort of somewhat abstract terms that judicial independence is part of the basic structure. Yes, no one disagrees, obviously, with that. And what the exact link was between the collegium and independence was still somewhat embryonic. You know, it wasn't yet crystallized. The But now you have the NJAC, which, you know, to use again the terms you used earlier, was something of a middle ground, right, between executive supremacy and judicial supremacy. It was something of a middle ground uh, between the two. It had representatives from both and, you know, a bit of a balance in certain ways. Uh, and now, therefore, the the Supreme Court, when adjudicating the constitutional challenge, had to really sort of, you know, stake out its ground. It couldn't, it couldn't take refuge in ambiguity anymore. And so what they do is, in a 4-1 decision or a dissent by Justice Chalameshwar, they come out and explicitly say that judicial primacy in appointments uh, is part of the basic structure because the only way to ensure judicial independence is by giving judicial primacy in appointments, you know, uh, and therefore effectively the court must have um, the first and last word. Now that, of course, is a little hard to swallow, right? Yeah, I think it's very hard to swallow, and I think, the, I mean, I, I I think the judgment is egregiously wrong on that front in the sense of uh, holding that. Uh, the primacy of the judiciary is the only way to, in, in judicial appointments, is the only way to ensure an independent judiciary. Now, I understand that, you know, in this sort of Montesquieu separation of powers, trying to find this balance uh, is, you know, it's, it's a delicate exercise. It can be difficult at times. And that uh, 
perhaps giving the power to make appointments of uh, you know uh, judges entirely to the executive and placing it at the whim of the executive would render judicial independence uh, uh, you know would 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 make uh, the guarantee of of an independent judiciary difficult and to that end uh, one could say that the executive shouldn't have the primacy but at the same time to say that the judiciary should therefore have the primacy and that's the only way to ensure an independent judiciary i i think is wrong uh, it's possible we've seen this in other jurisdictions in other countries where you have independent appointments commissions functioning and uh, you touched upon this i think in a recent article of yours in terms of uh, how perhaps our election commission needs to be appointed we do need to have this sort of fourth chamber really of uh, of the state where uh, you can have uh, where, where you need to have a sort of a body that's divorced from the other three wings in many ways uh, performing critical roles in government and in 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 and in ensuring that the independence of the other three wings of government and so I, I guess I, I guess my question my question to you is that was there any way that the supreme court in the njac case could have struck down the njac without also holding that judicial primacy was part of the basic structure so i mean so i I, I, i think the one way could have done that is something that you alluded to earlier which is uh, in article 124c when yeah. uh, you know uh, when the amendment where it accords to parliament the power to make laws to regulate the manner of njac's functioning it was possible for the court to say that this is something which is uh, in violation of the basic structure because if you're giving parliament a complete sort of autonomy to decide how the njac will function then parliament can effectively say as you said for example the law minister would have a veto now of course it's a different ma- matter that the law as it stands today doesn't say that and uh, the argument yeah. is delegation of of basic constitutional functions right to violating separation of powers by yeah. by yeah. effectively um, yeah i mean and on a full, full disclosure that was the argument that uh, i framed that mr datar and i framed together um in that at the time and he argued it but uh, you know unfortunately um that wasn't the basis on which the court decided so although we we did win i we didn't really win in the way i wanted to because i think ultimately the basis on which they decided the case was unjustifiable and that is what opens them up to these kinds of attacks right so it just seems so arrogant for the court to say that look the only way in which we can preserve independence is if we have you know the only say Uh, and that well a sounds arrogant and b is obviously not true given the experiences across the world and even given our own history right so so in that way it sort of the njac i think the problem with the njac judgment and in a way that this leads on from the second judge's case and i think in a way it's also exacerbated by the constitutional text of you know which is consultation which could either mean consultation or concurrence is that since 1990 1993 both sides have been playing a zero sum game right and you could say the njac was an attempt to sort of like find a balance between uh, the two sort of zero sum approaches and what the court then did in in response was to just reassert the zero sum approach so it, it didn't tweak the njac it didn't sort of you know uh, try to respond to one say opening middle ground offer with a some kind of a counter middle ground offer through interpretation you know the, you know, the yeah. court could have for example done what it has done in many other cases in terms of who these eminent persons should be for example and, and yeah. there, were, there were i think some of those solutions that were yeah. open to it uh, because if if we look at how these 
you know, supposed eminent persons under the NJAC were to be appointed, they yeah. were to be jointly appointed by the Prime Minister, yeah. the leader of the opposition, yeah. and the CJI. Yeah. Now, this doesn't strike me as a, you know, as a process of appointment which is entirely biased towards the executive at the time, right? In the sense yeah. of uh, saying that the, it's it's not like the NJAC uh, was modeled in a way where the eminent persons would be appointed by the executive entirely. In fact, the only real executive position on the body was that of the law minister. And uh, and for the law minister to veto a vote, you know, he would have needed a a vote either from one of the eminent persons or from one of one of the members of the judiciary itself. So I I, I think there was a chance for the court, which uh, it really lost in terms of trying to see how it could make this process which was introduced through the constitutional amendment a little better and perhaps uh, ensure a saner balance between, uh, you know, independent between an independent judiciary and between ensuring an independent judiciary and ensuring that the process of appointments isn't, you know, tilted towards having this completely extra constitutional system. And that's it. I just want to also point out that there's one that this sort of idea that the primacy of uh, the judiciary in making appointments is part of the constitution's basic structure, which I think is obviously a huge problem. But the other problem is that the court did say that, look, there are a lot of problems with the collegium, with this MOP, which is in place. It's mm-hmm. not transparent right now. So we will therefore now work towards making it a better system. And, yeah. you know, b- between then, between 2015 or 16, when the government, when the judgment came out and now, I, I don't think that this effort has really been undertaken at all. And 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 when it has been in you know fits and starts, you've had like things such as publication of detailed resolutions showing why a choice has been made, for example, uh, yeah. which 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 was dialed back again. And uh, there's there's really been no effort at opening up the process to any kind of uh, yeah uh, you know public. Uh, uh, discussion or having transparency in the system. I understand that you can't have large-scale public discussion when, given the number of judges that we appoint to the higher mm-hmm. judiciary, you can't have a system where, you know, you're inviting comments from the public on every uh, candidate that's being proposed, etc. But there are better ways to, uh, you know, have a system that, uh, or at least have the collegium open up to how exactly it goes about choosing its candidates. We we simply don't know today. It is. There is zero transparency. Yeah. Well, and I think we'll, we'll we'll come to that at the final part of this of this podcast. Yeah. But before we go there, just a, a, fa- a last question about the NJC judgment, and then we'll go into the last bit of the podcast. Um, do Do you think that effectively the court was haunted by the memory of the 70s and the 80s, right? In that, being somehow so scarred by what the executive did in the 70s and the 80s that the court has the feeling, and again, I think we can debate rightly or wrongly, but I think it's important to to contextualize, you know, in in our history, um, is the issue that the court felt that look, once we yield up this power now, which we only got after a long battle, it'll be the first step to disaster. And that the moment we start giving up ground, executives, you know, wherever they are, you show them a moment of weakness, and they're all over you, right? So they just wanted to just make sure that they wouldn't yield an inch. Because the fear was if they did, then the next step would be like something worse and ultimately you would lose independence. So were they sort of haunted by that history? Is, I guess the no, question. I think there are different motives that one can impute to the court in terms of why it went about uh, 
Well, let's 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 say the most charitable motive, right? The most constitutionally yeah, the, most, the most constitutionally palatable version is what you've just said, because I mean, uh, uh, there would be some who are far more cynical who would possibly say that some of these judges simply didn't want to lose the kind of power that they were wielding at the time and and would come to wield uh, with time in terms of being able to shape uh, appointments to the courts and. Uh, and this is again a part of the criticism right in terms of why should judges have you know have this kind of power in ensuring or in deciding who uh, you know succeeds them or who come who joins them on the court that they're presently serving in and uh, and i think that would be the most cynical view but it's possible to argue i think that uh, you know some of them that the, that the judges were effectively being a little my, mindful of uh, uh, the kind of uh, you know battles that were waged in the 70s and yeah. uh, uh, and 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 were concerned about that and and therefore they didn't want to uh, they, and therefore that they wanted to ensure that uh, the judiciary's independence is maintained yeah. but uh, but ha- but have they really done so and i think that's that's kind of what we need to get to right uh, yeah 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 no because i mean yeah no we so i think that in fact we should maybe touch upon that briefly before we go into you know the other countries because uh, it's it, it's a little funny and i think this is what makes i think the executive critique right now in bad faith is that the executive has plenty of a say in appointments right now it's just that they do it in in informal way they do it through a pocket veto for example justice muralidhar's pending transfer from odisha chief justice to uh, madras high court chief justice has just been they just haven't moved on it uh, so because they have the formal power to appoint they can just elect not to appoint formally the executive and technically nobody can do anything about that right you can file a case and that's happened but you know so far there's been no action taken so they do this pocket veto thing they uh, break up recommendations and elevate and appoint some and not others we saw that with justice km joseph uh, and they have this ib report right so they they send back names on the basis that the intelligence bureau has said x or y about a candidate uh so in that way they are exercising again and this is all stuff that you can see goes on behind the scenes no one knows because it's opaque but even from stuff that everyone can see uh, executive is playing a pretty significant role right now i, in, I think the classic example is justice kureishi's right justice akil yeah. kureishi's and what happened with uh, his point because he was i mean originally from the gujarat high court then yeah. uh, he had been transferred from the gujarat high court to the bombay high court yeah. and uh, and then thereafter uh, the supreme court the collegium had recommended his uh, elevation as uh, chief justice of the madhya pradesh high court yeah. and as you yeah. just pointed out similar to what's happening with uh, justice murlidhar right now the government was effectively sitting on this recommendation and yeah. then you had a writ petition that was filed in the supreme court and then the supreme court you know i mean started asking questions of the government but nothing really came of it then ultimately you had a fresh resolution from the supreme court from the collegium saying that justice kureishi would now be appointed as chief justice of the tripura high court and then and then that recommendation without the original recommendation in fact being returned or rejected and this second recommendation came to be accepted by the government and he was then appointed as chief justice of the tripura high court so it's not as if the executive isn't playing a role and i think in some ways that uh, you know i i'm actually surprised at the, the at the level of objections that they have to the system because i i, I think they the executive has been able to play a substantial role uh, over the course and of often, the often get its way often get its way uh, you know uh, 
Yeah, and this is not even, I mean, not even going into, you know, sort of various things that are said, which, you know, there's no way of proving or disproving in sort of, you know, backdoor negotiations. Obviously, there's no, there's never a way to prove any of that. So just even bracketing all of that, simply on the basis of what we can see, uh, you know, uh, they are playing a substantial role. That's right. Yeah, I, 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 I think they do play a substantial role. And, uh, and, and we've seen even in the ongoing case which uh, where some of their actions have been called into question there is real there's really no timeline to this yeah. entire process and yeah. uh, and the court hasn't thus far effectively laid out a clear timeline and you know you might want to say that look if you don't accept a recommendation within one month or two month. months or whatever yeah. then then we'll issue a writ effectively yeah. directing the executive to appoint such and such someone as, as yeah. a judge so the, but that hasn't it hasn't yet come to that perhaps it's it's seen as a step too far uh, nuclear nuclear option yeah yeah, yeah yeah i mean also i mean i think here here's where right the the opacity that they have that the judiciary has so far invoked as a shield becomes a problem right because so far they've invoked opacity as a, as you know a, a way that they need they need to close off close this off from scrutiny so that they can be independent in their appointments that is now getting a problem because there's no way anyone can know what's happening you know uh, in in between the executive and the judiciary you know in appointments because they've sealed off the process uh, from scrutiny and that of course benefits the executive because now no one can tell what influence if any they exercise apart from what you you know see as as we have discussed that's right yeah and uh I think this sort of opacity is also kind of what leads to people really questioning the collegium's functioning because if you have not opened yourself up to public scrutiny, then yeah. I think it's difficult to justify it as a process. It's all well to say that look, we know best, and that's the logic of the second judge's case yeah. as well. Right? Like we know how to make the system work, we know who are the best judges, but 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 we don't even have a clear sort of indication of how judges are being evaluated. Uh, there were reports in the press, uh, I think when uh, Chief Justice Lalit had just taken charge and when the collegium then had started to sit on meetings that uh, judgments of uh, various high court judges were now being studied before deciding whether to yeah. recommend yeah. them. You, you would have thought that this would have been done previously, right? That yeah. uh, this would have been one of the first things that uh, a collegium would have uh, considered when deciding whether or not to elevate uh, a person as a judge of the Supreme Court. So, but uh, but this became news. So, so it's so I, I think that the opacity of the process is really concerning and continues to be concerned. Yeah, we had a lot of questions, um, you know, in when I when I tweeted about a topic on Twitter about other models, right? Uh, which I think is a good segue because this thing of of studying high court judgments reminds me that um, in the interviews for the South African Constitutional Court. Uh, one question that they asked, and this really struck me, because uh, but th- and those hearings are live, live, um, live broadcast. One question they asked was that, uh, tell us one judgment of the constitutional court you disagree with, you know, and why. So that that sort of thing, those are questions asked, and I wonder what would happen if those questions were asked in our, you know, uh, proceedings. So there were a lot of comments about other other countries, and so a couple of people said the U.S. and look, honestly, the U.S. is not a serious country, right? I'm sorry, but you know, any any Supreme Court where you can predict in advance in any politically controversial case what the split will be and who will be on which side 
is not a serious judiciary. It, it just isn't. So I think their system is pretty, in a sense, almost banana republic-esque, right? So I really hope we don't go down that route because I think the last thing we want is all our flaws now compounded by the sort of bizarre political binary in the US between left and right or liberals and conservatives. So I think like, let's bracket the US. Uh, I think one system that interests me a lot is South Africa, which I mentioned before. And uh, they have a commission, like you said, and just, just look just look at the uh, the commission's composition, because I think this also responds to the point about eminent persons being defined. And a couple of questions also came in into, on Twitter about this. So their JSC is composed of 25 members. Uh, it's roughly even between politicians and non-politicians. They have the chief justice who, is, who presides, Supreme Court of Appeal, president, we don't have president here. Uh, then one judge president designated by the judge's president, like chief, chiefs of the, of the various high courts, equivalent, I guess, uh, minister of justice, that's the executive uh, presence. Then, yeah. Then two lawyers who are nominated by lawyers' bodies, two attorneys, because they still have that attorney barrister distinction. So two attorneys, similar nomination, one legal academic uh, designated by teachers of law at universities. Uh, six members from the legislature, which is three government, three opposition, um, four members from the National Council of Provinces, our equivalent would broadly be the Rajya Sabha, uh, and then four persons designated by the president, who is our ex- equivalent of the executive, um, uh, uh, after consulting the leaders of all the parties in the, in the legislature, right? So, so this is sort of a... Um, uh, system where you have, you know, a, a balance between not just the executive and non-executive, but like multiple stakeholders. And I think one very interesting uh, part of this is that um, when you are appointing to the constitutional court, the commission gives a shortlist of four names. And from those four names, the president picks one. So effectively, uh, although in the assembly, the executive pretty much has sort of that law minister as one of 25 members and then uh, two or three others who kind of indirectly come from there. So the executive isn't dominant or even, you know, a very significant player in the in the commission. But at the, 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 the executive is the last word, right? So you give the executive, say, four names and the executive picks one. So in that way, you ensure that the executive has a presence in in the selection process, but doesn't get to influence it too much in the initial stages. Now, they've had their issues. They've had acquisitions of capture by Zuma. So this is not perfect. But I think there are many interesting elements here that can give us pointers towards a design that may be, you know, useful in ensuring a certain kind of independence. That's right. Yeah. And I, and I, I mean, I think there's a similar system in the UK, right, where yeah. you have a judicial appointments commission, which comprises, I think, 15 members. And yeah. where there are five judicial members, then two members from the you know community of lawyers, then you have five lay persons. And, uh, and there's really no, nobody, nobody from the executive in the judicial appointments commission itself. But you have a uh, a, a commission that uh, comprises enough people with sort of the know-how to deal with, uh, you know, who know how the courts function, to lay members as well, which uh, gives you, I think, some kind of balance. And uh, and I think 
having a commission that as you said like allows for the executive to have its say without enjoying any primacy and at the same time also allows uh, the judges to have their say without enjoying primacy is a is a, is is to my mind a sensible solution of course you will have uh, instances and you know none of these systems are going to be perfect they're all going to be subject to potential capture by one institution yeah. or the other and it's something that you 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 hope that you'll have enough checks and balances in place to ensure that that doesn't happen but it's yeah. difficult to completely rule out that possibility but you got to try and do your best uh, but i think where the, you know the kind of system that we are looking to put in place it's one thing to look at the composition of a commission but it's yeah. also yeah. important to look at how the process itself will work yeah now the transparency so someone said on twitter um you know in south africa judges nominate themselves for the post and the reasons are disclosed yeah. later because once you nominate yourself you agree to the reasons being disclosed right so the sort of transparent thing where you know what the commission is doing and why it's doing what it is doing is made open to the public no and i and i think look one, one thing is nomination the other is also in terms of if you look at how the district judges are appointed across states in india yeah you have an examination right forward yeah. interview and a fairly detailed process i i, I, I I'm quite mindful of the fact that in some states this works better than it does in other states. But uh, but when we look at the states where it does work well, uh, it's a rigorous and well thought out process. You get uh, and 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 you know at the end of which you get judges who are well read in the law, who are competent, mm-hmm. who are uh, you know sincere, and who are uh, mm-hmm. and and you find the right people for the job. I, yeah. I don't see why a similar kind of system can't be put in place for the higher judiciary as well in terms of. Uh, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I don't know if an examination really is necessary, but some kind of interview process and some yeah, kind yeah. of process where uh, people are assessed uh, mm. on the basis of their abilities, and uh, and then you c- take into account various other factors such as uh, need for diversity, the need for ensuring you get candidates from across different bases, and uh, you know, uh, ensuring yeah, yeah. 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 you know all, all your and and ensure that you therefore get a broad-based judiciary, but. Uh, so, so I think it comes down both to the composition of a commission and also the process itself. Mm. And uh, there's plenty to be borrowed from models such as South Africa, such as the UK, and other places where commissions have been put in place. Mm. And uh, and I think, look, if the executive is really serious about wanting to do away with the uh, process of, you know, with the presently, uh, with the present process of using the collegium to make judicial appointments it needs to kind of open up for discussion uh, proper alternatives which it hasn't really bothered to i think do. what they would say is they tried that in 2015 and look what happened you know so <coughs> you know that's what they would say if if you know if that is but look which is why we come to this right like in a system such as ours where you have a system of judicial where the courts have handled out a final verdict on a certain law then yeah. you'll have to respect that verdict yeah. and this is the process today whether we like it or not and and i think that we need to respect that and we, we you know we need to act under that process and and see how we can improve that process for the time being without sort of uh, indulging in this constant kind of battle to overthrow uh, the process as a whole simply because you're not happy with some of the Uh, yeah. recommendations that are coming from the collegium or simply because you want to have your people you know uh, in in the judiciary i i 
which is what is to me regrettable in this uh, and 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 for and for the government to kind of uh, come out with these criticisms on a, almost a daily basis yeah it's uh, it's yeah Yeah, no, I think what is clear right now is that this is not a good faith engagement to come up with a come and a, a you know a way of appointment that would ensure an independent judiciary. But it is clearly a battle for dominance, and I think the more cynical among us would say it's always been a battle for dominance. So what's new here? Uh, but I guess as I say, you know, as as you can see that you do have examples from other countries yeah. where they have managed to you know not make it about constant battles for dominance and. and we seem to have been stuck in that in that loop since the uh, since the second judge's case and so i guess like one just wonders if we are sort of almost doomed to to just be in this perpetual cycle where you know the pendulum swings from one to the other depending on political situations uh, and any attempt at compromise then basically becomes illusory uh, you know or if we can or if there is a chance at some point to actually come together and uh, come up with a process that will never be perfect but at least would ensure that we are not always fighting either what seems to be an opaque and unaccountable collegium or an executive that is determined to stamp its will on the judiciary because neither of those are you know fights that are ultimately beneficial for a good judicial system that's right yeah i, I agree yeah i uh, I, i think that uh, as you said a good faith analysis would uh, involve a serious discussion on what a judicial appointments commission would look like and what the process of appointments would entail i think present today what the executive is saying is that we know best so allow us to choose the candidates which 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 i think is no solution at all and uh, at the same time i think look the judiciary has brought about a lot of this on itself right i mean right from the yeah. second case on to the njac judgment and i think the members of the collegium need to also have a serious discussion amongst themselves in terms of trying to ensure that their own process becomes more uh, publicly justifiable that they yeah. uh, and, and and i think the onus at some levels is on them uh, to make that happen I, i don't know how they go about doing that but they've got to work towards that and and they promised the supreme court in in the njsc judgment promised to do it yeah. but uh, it's not a promise that it's uh, fulfilled at all on that on that hopeful note that this promise they will fulfill soon <laughs> on that hopeful note um, thanks so much for joining the concast once again uh, surit uh, for taking out your time and uh, we will be back again soon thank you thanks for listening to the concast the podcast about the indian constitution the supreme court and beyond this podcast is hosted by the indian constitutional law and philosophy blog so if you liked it do head over there and subscribe thank you once again and until next time take it easy